0: My name is Jordi Mueller, and welcome to the Empower Women series event of November. And uh, today, we're extremely lucky to have not just one, but two special guests for us in a topic that um, it's very close to the Lexington family. Uh, We have a few clients that have gone through this experience of having um, special needs children and uh, having to go through the process from... A, a very, very early education to the creation of trust in older part or elder part of their life. And uh, it's definitely a challenge. And uh, But before we start having a very deep conversation about this, I want to say hello. So we have Tere Ramos. Um, how are you doing, Tere?
1: Good, thanks for having me. So Terry
0: is actually from Puerto Rico. Terry is an education and social security, disability, and civil rights lawyer, and has a very interesting background. I and mean, we'll get to the background in a second. Um, but I want to say I am extremely lucky you're here. And for the work that you do, especially with low-income families, I really, really want to thank you personally for oh, that.
1: Thank you. <laughs> um,
0: also with us, we have Karen Mariscal, Um which, by the way, the years of experience that she brings to the table, I can just, I could I have a list of like 30 lines here in my paper, but amazing, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. Um,
0: I think uh, a lot of the times we have speakers in Empower Women series, um, there's a personal connection to what they do and they present. And I think yours, both of yours in particular, is um, extremely personal. Um, I don't know if one of you want to start with why you are doing this.
2: Um, Well, this is Karen. I'll start. Um, My son, Billy, is my oldest, is uh, severely autistic, and he's 26 years old now. And um, boy, I've been through the whole process of special education and then um, transitioning him to adulthood, which he's uh, basically nonverbal and not able to have a job. So my husband and I had to figure out what is he going to do in the day? Where is he going to live? How is it going to go? And to make sure that he has a happy life, not sitting on Our couch at home all day, but having things to do during the day, during the evenings, on the weekends, and also how to fund that for the rest of his life. Because this is not like a four-year problem where you send him to college and then you're done. You've got to worry about this and how you're going to pay for it for the
1: rest of his life.
0: Yeah. How about you, Tara?
1: So um, I have two girls. Uh, They are 16 and 17 and a half. And uh, when uh, my youngest, uh, or my oldest, I'm sorry, when my oldest was about three years old, she really wasn't talking much and um, we um, we uh, seeked help and we uh, realized that she was autistic. So we moved to Massachusetts and we began the special education process. And even though we had, um, a whole bag full of, uh, diplomas sitting at home, um, way too many <laughs> to pay or count, um, we realized that th- this process was just overwhelming and it was daunting. And, um, and as a Puerto Rican and as someone who had worked with the Latino community in the past, I realized that if you didn't have the education and you didn't have the income, or the expertise that it would be. um, And especially if you didn't have the income to live in a really good district that already provided you with a great education, that the odds of your child um, getting to where they needed to be were, were very low, that you, you were not going to be able to accomplish much. So that is why I um, went to law school and decided to work on education law, because I realized that um, too many kids in our state were going to be shortchanged by the system.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's su- such an inspiring story from both of you, and or both stories very inspiring. But what you are describing, it's, it's one of the things that brought us to bring this topic to the Empowerment Series, which is not just the lack of resources, but the lack of people talking about the resources and how much society Not just in the United States, it's actually a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, Canon doesn't treat this as part of society, it just treats them as special needs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I want to give a couple of just context data points to understand how much uh, special needs are pervasive in our society, and we need to pay attention to them. So, in 2015, around 6.7 million children between the age of of 3 and 21 we're diagnosed, or uh, we're basically put in a specific learning disability program. This is around 13 percent of all children in the education program. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And then when you start getting into the underlying numbers of that, you start realizing that you, your children is three and a half more, to, to, more times likely to be with a specific learning disability than autism. And we hear about autism. But there's other parts of disability learning that will most likely affect your kids in the United States. Um, So I wanted to start with a very basic question, which is, as a lawyer, both of you, what is your biggest frustration when it comes to the system or the government or the programs dealing with special needs programs?
1: So um, I think uh, lack of uh, resources, lack of money, lack of understanding... uh, of priorities that uh, deal with this population are huge because to your point, I think that you gave 13%. Most districts have somewhere between 15 and 18% of kids with disabilities. Some of them are um, expensive. They require a lot, but most of these kids are kids who are in the general education setting. And if we put um if you we understood priorities to teach kids who are different learners in the system I think we could make a lot of work but I think the priorities in our system and understanding what needs to be funded what needs to um, be highlighted we're still lacking there
2: and you know my my by far greatest frustration is how we pay our direct uh, workforce these people are taking care of our most precious asset and they are paid Dunkin' Donuts salary. And they're always leaving. They're, they're, it's very hard to maintain staff in this environment. And those staff are d- sometimes getting beat up and hit. And, you know, I'm talking about the lower end of, you know, the autism or whatever. And uh, I just think it's a crime that we we don't uh, prioritize that kind of work. And all the way up, you have to pay your direct care better and then all the way up to your supervisors and all. Uh, because this is, this is precious stuff. This is God's work and we should, we should um, acknowledge it as such.
0: I do have to uh, give a distinction that Terry focuses more on, I would say, the younger side of this transition or this journey and carry more on the, like kind of after graduation of 18 years old, I would say. What are the biggest differences you, you see uh, when it comes to programs and society actually classifying these two populations?
1: Yeah, so we actually talked about this during our series. Um, uh, I oh <laughs> yeah, uh Education is an entitlement. Yeah. So the provision of what we call an appropriate, a free appropriate public education, is, it's an entitlement. Mm-hmm. You must provide it, and if the child cannot graduate at age 18, they must continue in Massachusetts until age 22. But then it gets to Karen, and she can get into, um, into more details. Once you hit age 22, that entitlement goes away. It's more based on funding. It's based on uh, availability. It's lists and weights. And it's it's a much more complicated system. And there's no requirement that it be provided at a certain level of quality. And that's a huge problem.
0: Okay, so what you're referring is basically as long as the checkbooks of being provided is checked, that, that happens in some institutions, but because that's the law, but in reality, there's no quality basic standards?
1: Well, sometimes you don't even have to provide it. Basically, oh. if the money is there, if you say, I'll give you an example, Texas has a wait list for adult services of 300,000 people. And that is because that is, if the, all the money they have is to fund 50,000 people and you're the 50,001 on the list, you're not going to get funded.
2: Wow. And in Massachusetts, we have a new law that uh, requires Department of Developmental Services to serve autistic people, even if they don't have an intellectual disability. And that's a, a huge victory. There was a huge celebration at Wrigley Field about, not Wrigley, um, Fenway. Fenway. And um, <laughs> And guess what? It wasn't funded by the legislature. So they they thought that they'd gotten it right and then a law is a law but if it's not there's no money behind it
0: it, it's useless yeah um i want to i want to change topics from uh being too negative on the government right (laughs) now and um some of the things that we have experienced in our company and the clients we have seen that are experiencing this is a little bit of uh um I would say passive denial of their current situation for the first few years. And totally understandable. It's a situation that most of the time their families have not faced before and it's the first time. And denial is a lot easier than taking care of it in the first few years. Um, what would you say is one of the three things or a few things that people should start doing right away when they realize they have a children with disability?
1: So um, I would say the first one is you need to educate yourself. If you don't understand, um, you need to understand not only the diagnosis, but you also need to understand the prognosis and you need to understand what is the journey to get there. What is the best outcome? Um, how to get to that outcome. So I think education is huge, uh, talking to other parents. The second thing I would, um, you asked for three, is that what well, you... Well, it know? can be two or yeah. three, yeah, yeah. whatever
0: you think it's the most I important. I think the
1: most important thing is you need to educate yourself um, about what's happening and you need to educate yourself about um, what your child should be receiving and, and what should be happening, whether you think your child is not ultimately going to need it or not. If you don't know where that child should be, how do you know that he's, he or she was doing well.
2: I totally agree with that. But I would also add from my own perspective, because I was in total denial with our (laughs) little one. Billy, he was our first child. We didn't know. But anyway, it was so helpful to me to have a support group. Other parents that were similarly situated that had kids like mine that I could talk to. And of course, my family. But but I really uh, needed those other mothers. Uh, once a month, we'd meet and laugh and laugh about things that no one else would think was funny. But it was such a release for us. So it was so good for me.
0: Um, along those lines, uh, there's in many other podcast episodes that we've had, we have kind of like discover on tap resources that people don't tend to realize they are just there for you. I'm assuming this is the same, the same. I mean, it's the case. Um, from top of your head, is there any kind of resource that comes to mind that it's kind of like undertapped by our current society that could totally be used for this particular use?
1: So um, when it comes to younger children, yeah. again, thinking my, um, the group that I help, um, there's two, uh, two groups that I always send parents of newly diagnosed. The first one is to uh, the Federation for Children with Special Needs in Massachusetts, just because they're a one-stop shop with um, education and resources. They will give them um, information of trainings and materials, and just um, uh, you can go there and get, rather than spending hours Googling things, and you know it's going to be quality materials. And the second one I would say is to, uh, to Karen's point, every, uh, every district in Massachusetts is required to have a parents group. It's called the PAC or the CPAC. And um, when I moved to Wellesley, I agree with Karen, they were a huge source of comfort and friendship. I think some uh-huh. of my best friends in town, I came across through this group. They gave me names of therapists and babysitters. And um, when things were bad, they were the person to call. And when things were great, um, yeah. you knew who to celebrate with. So. I think that parents don't attend PAC meetings as often because they're overwhelmed and they're tired, but at least connect with them and knew, know who they are and talk to them and know that um, those are the parents that probably will not judge you.
2: And as the child ages, I, I would like to mention there's a group of women, they're all women, uh, called Support Brokers at the Ark of Massachusetts who are uh, help so helpful in helping Children uh, transition to adulthood and get the right services, the right uh, programs for the day, the right place to live. It is a private uh, pay situation, but they're not. uh, I think they're worth every penny. So people should know about that resource.
0: I know Karen has to go very soon, uh, uh, but I, I would like to at least give you the opportunity to to say about this specific question, which is. From your perspective, from being a parent of somebody that has gone through this journey and is going through this journey, and also being an advocate and a resource for other people that are going through this journey, what would you say is the one thing that our current society should change? What point of view should we change to start helping uh, not just the actual children that are going through a journey, but the parents that are going through this journey?
2: So... It's the biggest civil rights issue of our time, I think, to have our our intellectually disabled people be part of everything we do instead yeah. of having them separated. And we're, we're we've made huge gains in that respect, but we're still we're still they're still not sitting next to us uh, all the time. They're somewhere else, and I would like to see them more integrated into society.
1: I I agree with that. I was going to say um, attitudes. I think we need to change how we look at them and stop talking about special needs and we need to stop talking about um, you see on the internet all of these videos of you know uh, folks that um, folks that uh, invite others to prom and help with basic things that no one else would do. And um, the perception is always that they're somehow heroic or special and you know we just need to stop thinking of them as differently and just start treating them as human beings.
0: Um, so, Terry had to leave So I, I apologize for that And we'll definitely get her contact information for everybody later um, Terry, now that I have you here I actually would like to give you a little bit of space To talk about what the special work that you do is for low-income families For yeah. those of those who don't know um, Terry has a little bit of uh, an interesting way of approaching this um, f- From what I have been able to research And already heard from people attending the Empower Women Series event today Terry adapts the costs of her services to the income that the family has, and that has allowed access to these resources to people that would have not been able to do that. Also the background of speaking Spanish, French, and a few other languages that I do not speak mm-hmm. um, has allowed her to reach communities that they were already secluded from society in some areas. So I don't know if you could expand a little bit on your work.
1: Yeah. So. Um, so. I um when I finished law school I was a public service scholar at BC Law and I worked in legal services and what I discovered in legal services that 70% of of individuals who seek legal services, free legal services, get turned away. Hmm. They get turned away because the income levels that are the cutoff are too low. Um, And second, because the money is so tight that the priorities that they serve are really, really limited. Um, But then the number of individuals that have the market price for a lawyer, which in Massachusetts ranges approximately from $300, 350 $400 an hour is really um, beyond what most middle class or lower families can afford. I mean, it's not even an issue to low-income families. It's an issue to middle-income families. So we decided to find um, to start a firm that would focus on the donut hole. Um, and our view is um, we first, uh, we we follow the model of legal services that we don't take a client and we don't think that we have a case or that we can help them.
0: Do you mind if um, expanding a little bit why you say it's not a problem for low-income families? I'm assuming it's because they get support from other places?
1: No, no, it is a problem. for It's, it's problem. just not an
0: option. It's just not
1: an option. <laughs> okay. Um, you, if, okay. You, if, you, if you don't have, um, you know. If you, you don't even think about it. Exactly. You just don't, you go to legal services, you get turned away. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of community organizations that they have see. support of individuals, but they can only take them so far in the system and then they just give up, Yeah. which is too bad. So um, what we do is we follow a model similar to legal service is in that we uh, look at the case, we, um, we see whether we think that we can prevail and that it's a, it's a valid case. Mm-hmm. And then we look at the um, table of federal income guidelines and based on the family's total income, so not just salaries, if there's any kind of public benefits mm-hmm. or um, child support, we determine the number in the family and the, um, and the total income and we look at it through the table. And if the family is under 400% of federal poverty, Uh, lines, which is $108,000 hundred eight thousand dollars for a family of four then we tear down the price right. so um, so basically and we have a good spread the reality is that not everybody who comes from an office is expend- expecting to have uh, almost free services um, we do have a lot of middle class families that have an estate that you know they have jobs but the idea of again of having to spend ten thousand dollars just to make sure that their child or twenty thousand depending on whether they have to go to hearing or not it's just it's just not an yeah. option
0: overwhelming.
1: Exactly. So our view is um, we can still provide the service that private attorneys provide. We just don't, we've made a commitment to know that um, our salaries and our costs will be kept low in order to provide a greater good. So we're kind of a hybrid between the legal services and um, the traditional law firm with the idea that we try to keep our heart in the the legal service world, but um, try to um, use a different way to get at it because the reality of, of grants and public funding right now, it's that it's really tight.
0: Yeah. yeah. So on so, the heart of, of nonprofits. Exactly. That's exactly how you operate. Yes. Well, um, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. It's been amazing. Uh, I know you have to go as well. Yes. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to put the information of both you and Karen in our podcast and the website uh, for everybody, everybody that wants to go reach them. They can do it through that. Um, and to close, anything you want to say to the families going through this journey right now?
1: Yeah. I want to say that... Um, you know, this is not a sprint. It's overwhelming at the beginning, but things get better. Um, if you um, if you seek help, if you um, learn, if you seek support from friends, if you um, find ways to help your child. Things will get better and then you can start planning for the future and, um, making sure that, you know, like Karen said, this is not a sprint. This is, you know, these kids will outgrow you. So, um, you have to make sure that you've planned and that you take it one day at a time, but it will get better.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And, um, (laughs) until next time, this was empowerment series for November. And uh, my name is Jordan Mueller. Hope you have a great day.